Hi everyone, welcome to the Art Gallery of Ontario. My name is Sean O'Neill, I'm the Director of Public Programs and it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you here tonight. Um, the sacred land on which the AGO operates has been a site of human activity for more than 15,000 years. Uh, this land is the territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credits, the Haudenosaunee and the Huron-Wendat. And today, Toronto is home to many indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work in their community on this territory. Um, it's a really exciting night. We're so glad and excited and grateful to have Maggie Nelson and Sheila Hetty here. Um, first uh, and foremost, I want to thank Canadian Arts. They approached us with this program. I don't think I've had a lunch or a drink with David Balzer in the last two years in which he hasn't mentioned Maggie's name. And uh, I think that's probably true for many people here. And of course, we've all been talking about Sheila Hetty's extraordinary work in Toronto and beyond uh, for many years. So thanks to you both for being here. Um, I'd also like to thank Nick Brown at Canadian Art and Kathleen McLean and Annie Roper at the AGO who've worked to make this night happen. Um, and I am only the first introduction uh, because why have one six-foot-tall queer white man talk when you can have two? Um, so please welcome my friend, uh, the editor-in-chief and uh, co-publisher of Canadian Art, David Balzer. I'm six foot four. Um, welcome, everyone. So happy to have you here. Um, just, just very quickly, some thanks. Um, first and foremost to BMO for their sponsorship of this series, which uh, earlier in the year brought um, Isabel Gras to Toronto. We're very, very grateful for this partnership. Um, and then, of course, to Sean O'Neill and the AGO um, for providing this venue and for taking on this amazing talk. Uh, to our community partner, Type Books. And a special thank you to Margot Williamson, without whom this would not have happened at all. Um, just a few notes about what I do and what the team at Canadian Art does, in case you don't know. Um, we, if you like what you're hearing tonight, you'll probably like what we publish. Um, we're kind of known as an art magazine, but um, I want us to be known as a cultural publication that feels vital, um, that feels very interdisciplinary, that privileges good writing and good thinking. So please check us out uh, online at CanadianArt.ca. We also have uh, a subscription table in the back um, with a special rate uh, and a an tote bag, an artist tote bag by Les Ramsey, and we all love tote bags. Um, so uh, it's now, without further ado, it's now my sincerest, sincerest pleasure and honor to introduce tonight's guests. Uh, Sheila Hetty is the author of seven books of fiction and nonfiction, including the novel How Should a Person Be, which was a New York Times notable book and was called one of the most talked about books of the year by Time magazine. She is co-editor of the New York Times bestseller Women in Clothes and former interviews editor for The Believer magazine. She will be publishing a new novel, Motherhood, in spring 2018. Maggie Nelson is a poet, critic, and the author of five books of nonfiction. Her books include The Red Parts, Autobiography of a Trial, The Art of Cruelty, A Reckoning, A New York Times Editor's Choice, and The Argonauts, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award, as well as four collections of poetry. In 2016, she was awarded the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Sheila Hetty and Maggie Nelson.
Hello, Toronto. <laughs> Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. Yay. Thank Hi. you, Sheila, for doing this. You're welcome. I'm just thrilled to be here. Anyway, I shouldn't talk first. Sheila should, but I, I just, just couldn't talk. contain myself. Okay, that's good. You could just talk for the whole hour. Well, another thing. No, you go. Yeah. Um, well, this is great. Maggie and I just met for the first time about 20 minutes ago. Which is so strange, right? I actually feel like I know you because I just do for so many reasons, but... Um, but we're more the same height than I thought, speaking of height. <laughs> That's my revelation. <laughs> um, there's so many questions, there's so many books and so many places to start. Um, so, yeah, there was something that you said that I, maybe we'll just start here. Um, you said that when you're writing one book, you're always like in the middle of writing it, anxious to begin the next one to be done the one you're writing, start the next one, and the next one that you're projecting is completely different from the one that you're writing currently, which I really relate to. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Like, where do you think that desire while you're in the midst of a project to suddenly be onto the absolute opposite project comes from? And what do you do with that? Do you, do you actually start conceiving your next book before you're done your current one, or how does it work for you? That is a very good question. Um, I'm trying to think of where I said that or what I meant, but since I don't know, I'll just think anew, which is that, um, no, I think that there's a lot of uh, self-hatred in writing. I don't know if you feel like this, but I think part of it is just that you're... I mean, we were just talking about this earlier today. I was talking with Margot about this, I think. But, like, you just... Um, uh, I, I think... Oh, no, I know. I was talking with someone else about this earlier today. But, like, about the... about um, Someone was bringing up to me the line in the Argonauts that says, all my writing feels like a bad idea, but I can't really tell if it means a bad idea, like it has no merit, or a bad idea, meaning it does have merit. And I think that I was just saying that I felt like there was some degree of, um, you know, shame or difficulty in trying to get very close to what you're most curious or interested in. And because it's a mystery, you don't really know why. And as you stick with it and stick with it and kind of feel the limits of, like, in a sense, your own... Um, obstinance or stupidity or the limits of what, how you can think about it, of course I think that produces the desire to be like, there's a better book over here. You know, it's the same impulse that might make you, you know, scroll on your phone instead of sticking with a difficult, you know, sentence or something that you're writing and it's just kind of a, um, I mean, I think that that emanation of the book that maybe you wish you were writing, the good book, as opposed to the bad book, which is the book that you have to be in the muck with, is a very natural uh, feeling. Um, I mean, I think What's so beautiful about it is that I don't, I don't dislike any of my books <laughs> in re retrospectively. And I think um, that one of the smartest things anybody ever said to me was um, a teacher and friend of mine and a brilliant writer named Wayne Kustenbaum, whom I'm sure some of you know. And, and he once reminded me that your feelings about your writing um, make no difference at all to the writing itself. And that made me feel very free that I could feel anything I wanted to at any point in the day about the book at hand and that, and that it, didn't, it didn't matter. The book had its own life and logic and um, imperatives that I, was, um, that I could feel depressed about or pleased with myself about and it, and it made no difference, you know. Yeah, and do you find that like when you look back on your books, you, you, you can say like, you can't tell when you were, because when you write, there's certain times when you're writing and you're just like, feel like writing is the only thing you could be doing in that moment and everything's going so well. And there's other times when it's such a struggle. When, when you look back, can, is there a difference? Can you tell, like, this is the times that I was really on, this is the times that I wasn't, or has it just become one 
can you feel the tone different change? No, can you? I mean, you can't, right? No. I mean, how could you? Because the moment of writing is not a single moment. So, I mean, unless you're like Kerouac and you're just, you know, moving through the typing of, you know, uh, you know, probably apocryphally um, of that. I mean, a book is not written in one temporal moment. So what might have been a very boring moment when a thought was emerging or an exciting one may then become very boring when you're massaging it you know, yeah, uh, grammar or something, and then it may become interesting again when it's calibrated by a different predicate or, you know, different things will happen. So, I mean, I, I think actually in a book of mine called Bluets, I was saying, I said in that book, um, you know, I don't know what I said. I said something like, it's like, a, like the, this book is like a river and who, who could know which parts of it I read, you know, crying or not crying or drunk or sober. And I think um, that that's, a very beautiful aspect of, of writing, which is again very related to this idea of it being separate from you, um, because it's an amalgam of moments. It's not a it's not a um, it's not a single performance, you know. But the red parts wasn't that a book that you kind of wrote in a different way, like beginning to end, very quickly without a lot of editing, just sort of just come more coming out than something like Bluettes. Yeah, kind of, but you know. I mean, we were just talking about the length of time it takes to write a book, and when people say, how long did that book take you to write? And you never really know, because you just, you know, you're thinking back upon, like, oh, when I was five, it occurred to me that, you know, like, you don't know when to begin your interests. And even though the red parts, that book, I did write quickly for me. Um, that book was a book I wrote about um, attending a murder trial for my aunt's murder suspect and uh, 36 years after she was killed. And I didn't really want to go to the trial because I thought it would be traumatic, which it was. So I, for the first time in my life, I had this idea that I, maybe I could get an advance. Like I've heard people that like got a contract, you know, like maybe get a contract <laughs> for the book. And that if I did that before I went, um, I would feel stapled to the project in a way that would make it more tolerable to, to be in, um, Ann Arbor, Michigan for a month with my mother. God bless her, Facebook, Facebook Live, she doesn't do that kind of thing. But like, um, <laughs> so I did a lot of research and I wrote a proposal and I learned how to like do, write a book proposal and I worked on it and I did all this research about social justice and criminal justice and the differences between them and I wrote this long proposal. Nobody would buy it, of course, so everyone just said, we look forward to hearing how the trial turns out. And I was like, darn it, I just have to go, you know, um, as a civilian. but. So again, like by the time I got back from the trial and I wrote it, I kind of had been back thinking um, so many things about the book. So uh, it didn't really feel, it, it, it felt like the writing process was, um, again, it was, it, was, it was layered in terms of how long it had taken, you know? Yeah. Um, there's, there's something else you said about, uh, you said um, you've written that uh, clearness is so eminently one of the characteristics of truth that often it even passes for truth itself. And that's um, Joseph Joubert. Like, that's good, but I didn't write yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you quote him. And then you say, I know all about this passing for truth. At times, I think it quite possible that it lies as if a sleight of hand at the heart of all my writing. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, cl well, clarity and truth are not the same thing, right? And I don't, not that interested in truth. <laughs> maybe I don't, maybe I am, but um, I, but I don't, I'm not interested in um, 
but I'm, but I'm very interested in clarity, whatever that means. And so, um, but I think that the difficulty with a clear or precise formulation um, is that, and anyway, I, wrote, I wrote about this a little bit in The Art of Cruelty via some Brechtian formulations, but that it can have, um, uh, it can have, you know, the, 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 the well-put phrase or the phrase that has, you know, some good alliteration or rhyme or whatever, you know, a kind of aesthetic working on you combined with a certain kind of clarity, it can make, a, it can make something feel true. Um, and I think that, you know, Brecht found that to be a dangerous aspect of aestheticization, and I think that I agree, um, but instead of uh, kind of... Uh, sanitizing, like, as if we could get away from the bad truths. I, I, I've, I'm interested in being precise about multiple truths, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, and is that, because we were talking before we got on stage a bit, and you were just like, when I'm reading fiction, I just feel like I'm wasting my life <laughs> um, and wasting my time. Um, like, do you feel like that's because when, like, fiction to you is not that same kind of clarity? Like, it's not the clarity of multiple truths or what what is it about novels that doesn't grip you I mean we're we write a lot you know there I mean I don't write poetry and you don't write fiction and we both write nonfiction but I'm, I'm really curious because there's such a yeah there's that you write in so many forms but never in the fictional mode I mean it's a it's a it's a kind of a joke that like I don't like fiction because like even in um, the Argonauts where I I think of all the things that that book says and talks about, the one that people most are like, you say in that book you don't like fiction, you know? <laughs> like, really? That's the thing we're going to Okay, great. Let's talk about that. But, like, but I say in that book I don't like crappy fiction, but that book is also, it's full of, I mean, its opening paragraph is about Beckett and it invokes, you know, many, many novelists all throughout it that are meaningful to me. So it's utterly, you know, not the case at all that I live a life that's free of being structured and... Um, bewildered by and blissed out by by novels and, and fiction, so it's not necessarily true. But I do think, and I don't, and I think that novels can certainly be precise, which is more of a quality of language and thought than it is a quality of um, uh, uh, narrative or plot or something, you know. Yeah. Um, but I do think that. Um, Oh, the best I can say about this issue, which is a memory, not an argument, <laughs> is that my, I lived in New York for many years. My mother would always come and we'd always go see like plays on Broadway. And right before like the curtain would go up and when you were about to be like in a make-believe theatrical feeling, she would always say to me, this is my favorite moment. It's right before all the magic happens. And it, that moment always made me feel like terrible dread that when, <laughs> that when the curtain was up, I'd have to be like, yeah, right, you're, you know, 1920s newspaper sales. Like I just, I, I felt like, and I was like, wow, my mother and I, she teaches fiction, right? It's her love of her life is fiction. So, and I would always just kind of notice like, we're both just having a totally polar opposite feeling about this, you know, rising curtain. And I just, it's just been a feeling I've always had to struggle with a little bit. I don't, I don't have a justification for it aesthetically. It's just a feeling. <laughs> so is there a sense, so your mother, like for her, that like the curtain going up, like that's the moment of magic. Like, do you have that feeling in approaching any art or approaching like, like that there's this anticipation? Like, do you ever feel like what your mother felt? That like the magic's just about to begin, but in terms of some other engagement in, in art or, or when you're... <laughs> 
thing. I mean, I knew doing this with Sheila was going to be good because I was like, I'm really going to have to think, which is good. But um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that I think that um, I think I mean, I do like bodies moving in space, and I like I like dance. I mean, I used to be a dancer. I like performance art, and I, I mean, I do feel. Um, I was just telling you, I had just been in Norway um, where Laurie Anderson was doing a performance. I did feel, waiting for Laurie Anderson to come out, whom I've loved my whole life and had never seen perform, I did feel this kind of amazing electric feeling of excitement. So I'm definitely not like a stranger to that per se, but I think that I am um, maybe out of some shyness, which is not immediately apparent to the naked eye, but that I like others feel inside me. Um, I think I like, I think I've tended towards, I mean, I like looking at paintings and I like reading and I like, I, I, I notice that I've tended towards forms of art where I feel like I can kind of slip in unnoticed, like without, I'm being unwitnessed while I'm witnessing. Um, it's, that's been most uh, generative to me is this kind of space. But again, it's not a, I mean, it's just like, that's kind of a matter of taste, I think, um, or personality more than it has anything to do with the art form. You know? Yeah. Um, sorry for that question. I don't know how I would have answered it. Um. I think seeing Laurie Anderson backstage would have been a good, I think that's, like, that's the, probably the best answer you can give to that question of, yeah, when, when do you feel that anticipation of magic? But then she spent the whole time talking, you said, about uh, a woman whose life oh, no, she no, accidentally no, she saved. Didn't, no, she didn't oh. talk about that on stage. No, 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 that was something else. Oh, oh okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the... Let's talk a little bit about um, this this thing that you've written, you wrote about in the New York School and other abstractions, um, that women don't feel this anxiety of influence that, or you know, that, that there isn't the same anxiety of influence model for women. Um, in fact, it's kind of the opposite, where women artists, and you quote Eileen Miles, like are often just in, engaged in the task of searching out models, searching out other women. I, I like this, this, this thing you say, Eileen Miles, she says she's looking for the mothers, which she says might include, quote, all the women I know. Women I know are turning around to see if that woman is here. The woman turning, that's the revolution. The room is gigantic, the woman is here, which is really beautiful. And I just wanted to ask you about your own turning and like has that, I mean, because you wrote the New York School and other, uh, and the New York School women and uh, Women, New York School. It's other, a tough one. Women, the, the New, New York, York School, School, and other abstractions. Other true abstractions. Other true abstractions, right. So you wrote, so that seems like a kind of looking for models or thinking about that idea. But how has your turning or like looking at the room changed over the years, like since that time when you sort of, I think that book was like establishing a kind of, yeah, um, yeah or mothers and then. Well, it's, it's funny when you read that quote from Eileen, because when she says, um, what does she say, I'm looking for the mothers, is that what she says? Yeah. Um, I think that um, that book, the New York School book, which I wrote, I don't know, maybe 2007, that, I mean, was published, that book, um, uh, you know, I, I definitely made a very explicit decision in some ways that I was going to write about women that I, that I admired, and many of whom I also... Per didn't prefer that they be alive, but it was cool that so many were alive. I wrote it, it was about Barbara Guest, Bernadette Mayer, Alice Notley, Eileen Miles, um, and Joan Mitchell, the painter who was not alive when I was writing, and then Barbara Guest died midway through. But um, uh, that was a, but I also, then there's a chapter in there about um, Frank O'Hara, James Schuyler, and, and John Ashbery, uh, and their interactions with um, 
a certain uh, their interactions socially with certain female painters and then also the interactions in their work with, with, with femininity and domesticity. So I think in a strange way, I guess what I was going to say is even though that was a, a more straightforward revisionist kind of art history project of inserting um, these women into a narrative or seeing how the narrative changed with them as the, fo the focus, um, this kind of notion of the many gendered mothers of my heart, which is at the core of the Argonauts, I can say that you know O'Hara and Ashbery and Schuyler were, were were many gendered mothers of my heart in that in that book, which is how they they got in and stayed in there. And so I think that um, that uh, that turning persists, uh, but maybe it's not um, you know as per the phrase, many gendered mothers of my heart. Uh, it has become, like I, I've tried to look for different ways of, of more expansively naming what kind of disidentified um, uh, alliances or relations have been meaningful to me. You know. has, it, has it been hard for you in the wake of the Argonauts to have the, um, I assume, like the projection onto you as one of those mothers? Oh, that's rad. <laughs> yeah, I would think that would be really good. I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean, I think it's weird because I was complaining to my partner. I was like, I was like, it's the strangest thing, you know. I've always heard this happen, but it was like, as soon as I published the Argonauts, which has a little bit in there about like aging female bodies. There's like a little passage about The Shining, wherever it was about the woman in The Shining and stuff like that. I, I was like, suddenly I'm getting all these emails about like, will I be on panels about women and aging? And I was like, it's just like everyone said. It was like I turned 40 and then suddenly my email box is not like, you know, are you an emerging writer? Suddenly I'm like, can you be on the aging women writers panel? And I was like, wow, this was so fast. So I do think, I do think that there's been a little bit of like, um, I mean, you know, when people say like that, like, an, you know, an 85-year-old is like looking at herself in the mirror and going like, you know, it's so weird that like the 17-year-old looks so strange today. And like, I mean, I do think that that's the revelation, of course, as you get older, is that like you're not really ever, you know, I feel like, you know, in your mind, like I'm always the fan and I'm always the reader and I'm always the admirer and I'm, I'm always the... Um, person that someone thinks is not authorized to use the copy machine, you know, like these things like have not really changed. Um, but, but yet, um, you know, but I definitely have experienced a shift in my, you know, I was kind of like writing as fast as I could for a number of years and it kind of felt like it was not in a bad way, but just kind of going out in the void of just, I'm sure that, I mean, you've been very productive and and working hard, I think, a lot of years too, and you just kind of are doing it because you're doing it, and I think, you know, it's only been the past year or two that I've had, you know, the real pleasure of, of anyone, um, like, you know, meeting people who've read a lot of things that I've written or something, and, and, and that's been great, you know, I think, to me. Do you still feel that same rush, like, to write and to write books, and, or is there something actually changing? Like, is there, I feel that a little bit, like, I feel like this strange desire, like, instead of, because I think when I was a bit younger, like it was like this mortality kind of feeling, like you've got to do as much as I can before I die. And now it's like, oh, well, I, maybe I, it's going to be a while or something. And then it's like, like I can just kind of like, like look at a tree, like sort of enjoy life Does it a bother you, that feeling, or no? Like the, the, the less I, I keep remind, I keep forgetting that I feel that way. I'm like, wait a minute, you're not in a rush. You know, you, you can sort of like, you, you can spend one day not working, yeah. you know? And no, it doesn't bother yeah. me that feeling. It's like a very luxurious feeling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like it's changed. I feel like, um, 
the circumstances of life make it so that I don't, I can't write at the rhythms and times of day and things that I used to. I have other obligations and so, um, uh, you know, I, I never stay up till three or four in the morning writing or anything anymore. I can't, I can't afford it with my, you know, I can't, my son gets up at six or 5.45, so that would mean it was all night. You know, there's not like that kind of, um, I'll sleep tomorrow feeling, you know, so I think, um, I, I mean, I ask you if it, if it bothers you because it doesn't bother me. Um, I feel like, I think it's, um, I'm curious as to what comes after what feels like the time of striving, you know? And I don't feel like I'm in that time anymore, I feel like, but I do feel like it's a time, um, I, I'm, I'm more curious about what thinking is than I am about what striving is, I guess. Um, curious about what thinking is? Yeah, like what thinking is and what, um, just, I don't know, I was reading a book recently, it was a, a friend's book about Wallace Stevens and in it, she was writing about Stevens' interest in this uh, American fundamental, not fundamentalist, just Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, um, and about how Edwards used to talk about, and Wallace Stevens loved this idea of like the brain um, as an organ, just like if I touched your skin and you would feel it, that like thinking is how the brain feels, you know. And I think that in a culture that agitates against what thinking feels like or taking the time to notice I'm 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 interested in in and then of course thinking and writing are very linked for me and so far as that you don't really know what you think until you write or you think you know what you think but as you go to write um, something happens to, to thought um, so I mean I'm, I'm I'm I find myself more interested in making space to make sure that that is happening in part of my life because I can see that it's easy for it to fall out like most most forces agitate against it in in life um, but I'm not so interested in kind of, um, uh, I mean, speaking of Eileen Miles, who's, you know, written so many books over the years. She was my teacher and is my friend. And when she was, when I was much younger and I was studying with her when I was in my early 20s and, you know, she would always, she would like, I just remember writing down in a notebook, she would say like, publish a book every two years. I was like, publish a book every two years, you know, and then, and then I, and then I tried. So like, I think I published a book and. I don't know, 2001, 2003, 2005, 2007, and then I was like, 2009, and then I was just like exhausted, <laughs> you know, I was exhausted, and then I, you know, and then it, it took a lot longer, and I think the book I'm working on now will take quite a bit longer, so it's just, I think that there's something, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that also has to do with having more features in your life, and that's okay, because then your life is richer for having more features than just, you know, how late can I stay up burning the candle with this project, you know? That's funny, like I, for me, the ideal would be like publish a book every five years or 10 years. Like right. to me, that seems like, like a, you write about Jane Bowles sometimes. And I love that Jane Bowles having like written one novel, you know, one play, one story collection. That seems perfect to me. And what does it matter? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I, mean, I think now I'm just much more concerned with like, God, like, it has to be good. Like it doesn't matter if I only write, you know, if I write nothing else before I die, I write one thing before I die. It's like it just doesn't. Yeah. Was yeah. there a book that you kind yeah. of felt after having published it, you were kind of like, <laughs> where that turn was it like? Was it the Argonauts where you just kind of felt now I can be, because die. the book was such a great um, popular <laughs> success. Um, you know, well yeah, like that you 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 can like take some time back for yourself. Like when a book is that successful and that loved. 
there's a there's a way in which so much of yourself is not in yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, almost. I mean, did was there any part of you that felt any kind of resentment, even of like having been so having your words in so many bodies? Oh no, I mean that's just super. I feel super grateful about that. But I do feel like I do feel like I've um, or emptied, if not resentful. Like, isn't is there like a no, no, you know, I mean, I think, I think to me, it's just, um, I mean, I do feel, I, I do feel able to take, I, I, like, I don't feel any imperative to keep, to keep going for anything else except for myself, and I think that, um, I mean, I think, I don't know about you, I'm curious to know what you think, but I feel like writing has only gotten harder and harder for me, you know, as I've gotten older, and I think that that continues to be the case, and I don't, I don't quite know why, but I think it's in part because, um, you know, you get impatient with whatever trick you learn, so you have to teach yourself something new in each book or each project, and, or, and, 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 or muscle through a, a new thought that you haven't figured out yet, and it just becomes harder and harder, and hopefully you might be taking on more and more complex thoughts, and and so I think that, you know, now I'm not, my, I don't know, my imperatives feel very, to keep writing feel very um, personal in terms of like thinking of new problems or um, new problems to solve, but they don't, but I think that's one of the gifts of feeling like you've finally gotten something back maybe from um, an audience or a world that you may have been striving for is that, that it's like that doesn't, it's not like a, I think that's always kind of a phantom reason to do something anyway, but it can definitely become a little bit like dispensed with if, you know, if you've been lucky enough to, to feel like you, ha you do have readers, you know. Um, I feel like it gets easier <laughs> and easier, which now that you say for you it gets harder and harder, now I'm suspicious, like, <laughs> of my getting easier and easier. And I was, I was actually talking to my boyfriend about this this morning. I was like, oh, you know, like the 10,000 hours thing, like it makes sense after 10,000 hours of work or whatever it is, you know, there's another part of your brain that creates the writing. It's like the subconscious, you know, it's like a different, I, I, if I remembered, I would have said what it is uh, instead of stumbling for words, but I don't remember. But anyways, and he was like, that's bullshit. Like the 10,000 hours thing has been debunked. So I have no explanation for why 10, it's gotten hours easier. Is like if you do 10,000 hours of anything, then you're, it's easy to do it? It goes or into your long-term uh, okay, yeah, yeah. brain. Your, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Next question. No, I don't know. Um, I, just think it, I, just think it's, I just think it's weird because I don't think of writing as like one thing. So I don't even know that I've ever spent 10,000 hours doing Like even if I, I don't know, just like I don't even know what, I don't even know what writing is you don't anymore. You think like constructing sentences is one thing? Oh God, I don't know. Not, not really, I guess, because I feel like there's a, I don't know. Like I just feel like books of mine speak in different languages um, and like, I mean, I'm not an academic, really. Um, I don't know what I am, but like, I, I did get a PhD, and like, I have read a lot of. <laughs> no, but I just have read a lot of academic writing, right? So, like, um, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that, like, I'm. I've never been uninterested in argument and like trying to say something or laying something complicated out, even when I was writing poetry. But I always, always, because I came up as a poet, I was always very clear that there's not one way that you say the thing that you need to say, right? So, but, but that kind of moving between like lyric gesture and a kind of more um, 
explanatory language is a puzzle that I never really feel like I've solved. And so different books of mine, I feel like try and solve it a little bit differently. But, but where it lands in terms of like what, what voice I'm going to land in to speak it, I just feel like since I never, since each book has like a different one, yeah, like constructing the sentences doesn't, it, they don't feel to me like the same problem because I'm, it's speaking, and I mean, I'm sure like with novels, I'm sure it's the same, like you're kind of, you're doing a new thing, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I feel like my voices in the books are different too, but I don't know what gets easier about it, maybe it's just confidence or something, like there's a way in which, or I know what the bad stuff is quicker, like when I was younger, I would sort of like convince myself that the bad writing was good, and that just took me so long to see that, no, that's actually bad, whereas now I'm like, I can sort of like look at the page and know instantly like that was not, that's not good, or there's something it almost beca it's becomes as apparent as a painting. Like, I don't have to read every sentence to know. Yeah, I think that I can feel like that, but I don't feel like there's any substitute for doing the bad writing. So I feel like maybe that's part of what becomes more painful is that, like, I know it's bad, and I have to write it anyway, because I know I have to write it anyway. So it's like day after day, I'll be like, oh, did you write anything you liked today? I'm like, no, it's just all terrible, all terrible, all terrible. And, and that's just, you know, and, and I think, again, with kind of nonfiction or criticism, it can be difficult because um, uh, like whatever urgency or immediacy or um, intimacy or heat or something that I can get into my critical writing um, usually comes from a very... Uh, excavatory process on boring writing that I perform at a later date <laughs> and kind of take out like the middle of sentences that were good without the um, equivocating apparatus that surrounds them. But I write with equivocating apparatus. It's like the way that I think. So I know some of you who may have read something I've written may be familiar with this because it drives some people crazy and saying, but like it. But I tend to be a very um, uh, look at it from this way, look at it from this way, look at it from this way kind of a thinker. And I, you know, one reason why I love Wittgenstein so much and one reason why I used his prose and philosophy as a model for my book Bluets was because he had all these lovely kind of self-excoriating um, locutions like, but now you have not thought about it this way or, but now let us say it is as if, you know, like, and he kind of, he's just talking to himself, you know, there's no us that's like, you know, coming into the room to tell him, you know, but you have not thought about it this way, Ludwig, you know, like it's just his own mind. So I think that I really, um, I loved in his work, this idea that that kind of, um, uh, that kind of, you know, compulsion, uh, again, kind of self-excoriating compulsion to continue to look at something in different ways could be a style, you know, that he used and that was fruitful and that was and that was charming, as opposed to being just like, you know, like people in my life are always like, "You're such a devil's advocate," you know, and like, and that's not a good, you know. I think that that can be really um, in early drafts, it can be very difficult for me to find what I'm trying to say, you know. So I think that that to me means a lot of bad writing while I write out what like all these perspectives might be until I kind of have thought it through, you know. So with The Art of Cruelty, like you wrote that book, when you, because I'm really amazed by that book and amazed by the, like how erudite you are in it and how you seem to have everything you've taken in over the last 25 years right at the front of your mind and, um, what was the process of writing that book like? Because I, I understand better how you can write the other books, but something something to me, like the, the Art of Cruelty just seems, and the, the, the thing that you do in The Art of Cruelty, which I find so amazing, is like, 
after having read that book, you know, like Marquis de Sade and Arto, and um, you know, some of the, these are some of my favorite artists. And I sort of believed before I read the book in in the idea that that degree of cruelty or intensity um, or violence or whatever what could be sort of cathartic or it did have some purpose beyond itself. And after reading your book, I just like, no, it just is, it's, it is, it doesn't serve any additional, it doesn't serve any additional role in the world apart from a demonstration of that, that cruelty or that violence, which is, I think that's, it's such a, it's such a subtle idea and so radical at the same time because it just all begins to look very child. Sort of, if not childish, just um, um, that uh, yeah, that doesn't do anything. And I think that, and as you say in your book, the, the the argument for why we should be looking at cruelty in art is because it does something that it, it that it does that it does serve a function in society. And and you at the end of the book saying, well, if you don't want to look at it, you don't have to. Something about the 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 subtleness of that. Yeah, just takes the, leaks the power out of it. Whereas I feel like if you'd said, it's horrible, it's, you know, it's, it's gruesome and it's awful to subject us to that, then it would have kept the power. It would have, it would have invested it with even more power. Did you know when you started that book that you're, you were gonna come to this place of, eh, you don't have to look, you know? And I always it, wonder what that book's thesis is and now I know. <laughs> <laughs> Take I'm not it. saying um, that's the thesis. That's just no, no, what I, that's I my emotional takeaway. No, no, I think it's a good thesis. <laughs> um, I think when I wrote that book, and I still feel this way, and I still think about it all the time, because I think we're living in a new moment when, like, um, when questions about art and ethics are very pointed. Um, I think I've always felt uh, that, you know, how do I say this? Like. Uh, I'm, I'm always very interested in, you know, the premises or the structures of our, of, our, of our conversation that we didn't know that we agreed to, you know, prior to the conversation. And I think that one thing that art can get into as a premise that people, like people think being good in the world or being ethical in the world or being like generally trying to make the world a better place are things that like we all agree or is like thumbs up that like then, or like, or, or, or say there's a word that's like valenced positively, like community or... I don't know what, you know, sociality or something, then you can kind of get these waves of art criticism or of life where everyone's trying to be like, oh, this terrible, you know, piece of art that makes you feel like you're going to vomit, like it's actually all about sociality or it's actually building community or it's actually really ethical. And it's like, I just always have felt like that was, um, like, that, like, whenever, say, like, as a teacher, like, say somebody in class would say, I think this work is really sadistic, and somebody else would be, like, defending it by saying, like, there's no sadism in it at all. And I'd be like, well, what if it's sadistic and we can still like it or we can still accept it or we can still enjoy it or somebody can get something out of it like it didn't seem to me like um the like the ethical like kind of turning yourself into pretzels to make something ethical was the only way that we could perform um viewing and looking and being um so i think in that way maybe it wasn't as much of a shrug as it just was a kind of anti-redemptive approach <laughs> to a lot of this work because in some ways some of the the need for redemption kind of falls away if your premise is something like 
art can have things in it that the world also has, which includes sadism and cruelty, and you know what I mean? And, and so, um, and, the, and that the imperative of art is not necessarily to transform them to make the world a better place, you know? And I, so I did the book, that book was more of an excavation of other people's ideas, like, I quote Mike Kelly at one point, who said something like, I make art to give other people my problems, or like, these kind of like other weird ideas that I'd kind of collected over the years that I thought to me offered like portals out of a kind of um, what to me seemed a little bit scripted and like hamster wheeled um, premise making that, that was happening around me. So I think that, um, and then also I've always been curious, maybe, maybe this is why my work is often like strewn in between like autobiography and criticism is that I've always been curious about how to use um, the subjective experience of oneself as a viewer um, without getting into this kind of undergraduate modality of like, oh, I thought the poem was about my grandma, and like, oh, I thought it was about snow, and I guess we're both right, you know, like, kind of like, as if there's nothing that the third thing that you're both looking at that you could say that it's doing, but while also obviously knowing that, you know, that, that we all come to work with our whole apparatus of, of um, where we've been and what we, who we are and what we've seen. And so I wanted that book to be, you know, have kind of an argument, but I also wanted it to be um, a writing experiment for me of how I could use myself as a viewer guinea pig to demonstrate, you know, oftentimes say returning to the same piece of art over like a 10 year period and, and noting the different things I got out of it at different moments. So like you might sit here tonight and say that about like, you know, Marquita Sada, but then like in five years, a different moment you might have a totally other revelation about Saad and that that to me is what makes so much work that I value going back to. And some things you go back to over and over again and they are bankrupt, you know, forever. And like it never, there's nothing ever recuperable or interesting again and that's interesting too, you know. Um, like I don't think it's the mark of a great work of art that it has to give your whole life, you know. Um. Um, this is a risk, but to be topical for a second, do you think, like, what, I think what we're, a lot of people are talking about right now is, like, can you enjoy a work of art if the creator is, by your own judgment, morally bankrupt or a bad person? You know, like, there's all this stuff going on where we just can't take in that art anymore. What, what, do you have a perspective on that? I mean, I'm a anti-generalization person, so I, I would not, like, Anti-what? Generalization. Right, right. I mean, like, all of you guys are sitting here, and some of you have probably, even within your own same individual personhood, probably some of you have people that you've decided are, you're, are done to you and dead, and other people you're like, oh, but I still like that one, you know? It's like, I mean, I mean so I don't even think that it, um, I don't think it makes, I don't think it's something that you can generalize about. I mean, I think that, I was just rereading, which I'm sure many of you know, Jose Munoz's book, Disidentifications. I was just rereading it this morning because I think it's, you know, I mean, obviously it's canonical and queer theory, but also because it's um, theorization of how people, like say like how a young queer woman might go to Fanon to find anti-colonial um, guidance and inspiration and then hit his like terribly homophobic footnotes or something and like and how Fanon, you know, and, and so his description of disidentifying and like how how we find things, not 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 because we swallow the whole pill, um, but because for him, disidentification as he describes it is a modality of survival of a minority culture to a majority culture. And I think that 
when seen from that perspective, um, it doesn't have to do with like uh, Huckline acceptance, Huckline and Sinker acceptance of things um, and their toxicity. Um, it has to do with what can be much more nuanced um, engagements um, that have to do with uh, reparative reading, you know, reparative being. Um, the, uh, the idea of like Judith Butler talking about the bad readings of gender trouble, and you talk about that in your book. I'm just wondering, like, with the Argonauts, let's just say specifically, because I think well, that's the most recent one. Are there um, particularly like disturbing or upsetting readings of that book? That's a funny question. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that there are. <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to hear about what I think about this, but since you asked, I mean, I guess I will say that the one that has recurred the most often that maybe um, I dislike the most or something is the one that says, that just because, again, with my kind of interest in structures and premises, it's the one that says... Um, this book is about like a wild queer person reckoning with, you know, settling down or something like that. Like <laughs> reckoning with normativity. And like I, um, in the moments in that book that kind of, um, that are aiming to cast a light on phenomenons of like passing or phenomenons of like in your whiteness being saluted by someone as a mother that matters or like in those moments of trying to show what the feeling of um, like meeting normativity feel like, um, you know, you know what I, uh, I was not trying to rehearse my own um, deciding whether or not to like give in to some tidal wave flow of like, all right, let's just like, you know, pass forever and like, you know, and not fight the good fight or something like that just wasn't. And I also don't think of things like monogamy or, um, you know, part of the whole book was about, I don't like the word queering as a verb very much, but just for the sake of shortcutting, like queering maternity or something. So like, you know, asking questions about maternity's relationship um, to heterosexuality or, um, so the idea that like hook, line, and sinker, it would be taken as if having a baby would be acquiescing to a heterosexual norm was really not what the book was about. So those, I, I, I meant a more, um, I, I meant a more inquisitive and sometimes damning look at, at, um, at that angle, then I meant like some kind of internal struggle, which I've, which I've actually never felt because my life, um, there's nothing about it that feels like settling <laughs> or settling down or any of those kind of just words that seem like they kind of come from a different um, like parallel universe or something. Um, in your book, you say that Why Winnicott Now is one of the alternate titles, which I love. Um, and, but, and, you know, and when, you, when a person chooses a title, and I, love, I think your titles are fantastic, when a person chooses a title, uh, it puts the reader's attention on a certain aspect of a book that has more, many aspects. Um, and so, you know, n not calling it Why Winnicott Now is to... I would have really put it on a different shelf. Put it on a different yeah. shelf, but it but it's like more about mothering, right? And then and then the Ar Argonauts is more about 
love and the changing family. And, the, and I'm just curious if you are willing to say what some of your other working titles were for that book, because those are so both funny. such great titles. Sheila, your questions are so great, because you're just totally a writer, so you just know that there's like a file of rejected <laughs> titles, you know? So many people who don't write think that like things are like, things couldn't have been otherwise when it's like, books are like about to fall into their otherwise like at any, at any given moment, but um, well, yeah, you know, the most common, it's a little embarrassing because it seems really pretentious, but the kind of most common working title for this book was Involution, which is Deleuzian for those of you who are into that kind of thing. So I think that, uh, um, but because of that Deleuzian thing, I kind of couldn't go there and it was also, would have put it on a different shelf too, but I think I was really, like, I was really interested when I was writing that book. I mean, different books of mine have used like the so-called personal in different ways, but but to me, the personal is not like, a, I don't think it is in your books either. It's not like one thing. It's not like, oh, here's this card, you know, like the personal card. Like it's, it always is in a different book, it does different work and it can sound different or um, mean differently. And I think that in this book, there was something, it's why I was reading, you know, for those of you who know this, Peter Sluttergic, trilogy about spheres and bubbles and anyway I'm losing some of you and catching some of others of you anyway but I was very interested with this involution notion of like that the way I was trying to think about the personal in this book had something to do with um like I say in the book at one point like um like near right in the inside from the inside and I was curious about that in part because I was gestating a baby so there was a kind of like obviously like a an interest in um, internal spaces, but it was also, I think, about some questions that I had while I was writing that book about like what it means to kind of write to or within a subculture or a community, like, um, and the differences between that and so-called like mainstream eyes on a book or something. And I think that uh, my partner Harry Dodge, who's a, great artist like and thinker he's um it was one of the, one of his most formative moments of his life was um seeing a show called sick joke um in san francisco back in the middle of the aids crisis um of the late 80s um and early 90s and he ran a cafe next door called the bearded lady and um that show, which was at Kiki Gallery, was like all about AIDS jokes and about the kind of the difference of AIDS jokes told within the community of people with HIV and jokes told about people with HIV from outside that community. And, I, and he kind of just kind of had his um, world blown by these kind of, by, by kind of getting closer and closer to the nuances of about humor and satire and how things work differently. And so I think in this book, because I, I was just, I was really curious about those questions and they, um, about kind of who I was talking to and who like a critique of something kind of like intra-queer, how it would sound to somebody else who'd be like, yeah, you know, if even she's saying it, you know, those fuckers are like this or whatever, you know? So I, I was very, I just kind of, so I was just really thinking about in, insides and outsides and involution and like the action of turning, turning within. And I, um, and the Argonauts is a really different title. It's a very like external, like set sail kind of a title. Um, but I think that, and, and I, I didn't, I, I preferred Argo, but Ben Affleck got there first. 
and there was, I didn't want to have like his DVD come up in my book like every time Amazon you can't. So I, was, so I kind of struggled for a little while. And then I, but then I really liked the Argonauts because, um, you know, my concern was that it was too like, you know, and I've gotten a few of them, but my concern was it was going to be a little bit too like, what are your feelings about Greek mythology, you know? And I was like, I have none, you know? Kind of, um, kind of a conversation, like it's all about Roland Barthes and his reading of, you know, the Theseus' paradox. So, but, you know, I think the eventually I liked it because I felt like the book was about um, making a tribe or um, paying homage to a tribe and that, of actual people and actual voyagers and actual bodies. And so I liked having a plural, proper name to refer to them, you know? Um, I have no idea what time it is, but I want to make sure we don't miss the opportunity for everyone in the audience to ask, is this a good time to do that? Sure. It's 8 o'clock in two minutes. Oh, wow. I didn't know there was somebody in that speaker. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> what time is it? So we were supposed to go to 8 o'clock, and we're two minutes to 8 o'clock. Um, I feel like I'm a, like a professor or something like that who just like knows those things in, in their body. Um, uh, there's people walking around with microphones. Uh, just raise your hand and they will come to you. Yeah, the microphones are for people to ask questions. So if you have a question, you get a microphone. It's like a contract with me and Annie. If you have a statement about how much you love Maggie and Sheila, that's for a different time where like social CS media backstage. is good. Okay? Hi. How's it going? Um, my point of entry into your work, Maggie, is through the Art of Cruelty, um, and there's a part in it, uh, the chapter, in the chapter, Great to Watch, where you talk about the show To Catch a Predator. Um, and for everyone who doesn't know what To Catch a Predator is, it's a show where decoys are set up on internet chat rooms, and uh, they uh, are engaging in sexual conversations uh, with adult men pretending to be uh, teenagers or underagers. Um, so these decoys invite them into the house, and then the show is about uh, exposing them, confronting them, shaming them, and arresting them. By the end of your anecdote about that show, you talk about a really unique example. Uh, there was a man who engaged in a conversation but didn't take the decoy up on the invitation. So what the show did is... Uh, they um, charged his house. Uh, and the reason why they charged his house is because he was a prominent public figure. He was in law enforcement, I believe. And um, when they got into his house, uh, uh, without, in, again, accepting the invite of the decoy, uh, he shot himself in the head. So what was interesting about how you ended that is that you quoted uh, a line that said, you know a television show is doing something wrong when it makes you feel sorry for a potential child rapist, which I found to be <laughs> uh, an incredible thing. Yeah, that, I, had to, I had to contextualize, and here brings my question. Um, uh, in light of the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal, this has manifested the hashtag MeToo movement. And from what I can tell, that is, uh, that is, um, it's a movement of solidarity to expose the ubiquity of sexual abuse in North American culture. My question, um, because 
the hashtag MeToo movement is also in the realm of public opinion. And it's about also naming and shaming in addition to this solidarity. Do you think it carries the potential to cross into a terrain that uh, to catch a predator crossed? Yeah, I mean, thank you for all that. God, I forgot about, I read about that horrific episode, so I don't know, now, it, now I'm remembering fully <laughs> all about that show and that thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, um, yeah, I mean, I was not, for obvious reasons, I think for all of you hearing about that show, I, I was not a, a fan in any way, shape, or form of that show's, <laughs> of that show's premise or activities, and I think that, um, uh, I think I was just, you know, everyone's talking about these things these days, so I'm not sure there's anything I can add that, like, I mean, part of what I'm really enjoying about the conversations everybody's having is that um, how many, again, kind of how many different things I think each person can feel on any given day, like, between, like, you know, let's get them all, motherfuckers, you know, <laughs> like, it's, like, one strong feeling, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, we'll take down everybody in Congress, you know, if we have to, I mean, that kind of feeling, and, like, you know, and then, of course, I think like you're saying, which is like, I have a very deep-seated, um, you know, uh, alarm at, at, at uh, sex, sex panics, uh, profiling of perverts. I mean, in queer history, uh, it's a big, huge part of queer history. Even unwanted advances as a I don't know what y'all have going on here, but in the United States, we've had, you know, what's been called the gay panic defense, where, you know, if someone made an unwanted advance to you and they're a, a gay person, that, that could be, and you killed them, that could be held up in court as something that was a, a gay panic defense of your activity, you know? So there are, like, kind of different, there are a lot of different histories that play into um, this moment. I think it's a good moment in some ways with, with some very negative um, aspects. Um, so I think it's not all one thing, you know? And I think that if we expect it to be all one thing, um, uh, we will be uh, outraged or disappointed. So I think, um, you know, Margot, where are you? I can't remember Margot where she is. But yeah, I mean, Margot earlier today, it was really lovely, and she was just saying that she appreciated the, the mess, and I think most of, of the moment, and I think most of us don't like a, a mess. I think it is a mess, but you know, so is, um, so is misogyny is a mess. So. so my question is a pedagogical one. Uh, so one of my favorite moments in the Argonauts is when you talk about the moment in Sedgwick's classroom where she asked everyone to pick a totem animal and how much anxiety that moment caused you. And when I've taught your book before, I've thought about starting the class like that to see how that experiment goes um, and haven't done it. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your own pedagogy um, and how that moment with Sedgwick has informed it. Have you ever done anything like that with your own students? Um, yeah, what sort of can we like take away from that moment? I know, I'm a really boring teacher, but I think I'm gonna try and get like a little bit loopier as you know in the as I go along. Because I think that Sedgwick, um, I went to the Graduate Center at CUNY, which is you know New York's public graduate university, and it was an awesome place because there were a lot of people who'd been like like Eve who'd been at. Um, 
much more Tory places and were kind of in exile at that point, like kind of doing whatever they wanted at CUNY. So I feel like I would have been probably terrified in her classroom at Duke or something, like kind of in the real like, you know, whip it days of, you know, queer theory. And I think, you know, by the time I got to Eve, she was, um, you know, many years into breast cancer, which would eventually take her life. And, and she was very into Tibetan Buddhism and she was very into um, textiles. And she was into a lot of things. And you know, she, she didn't teach a classroom. It wasn't like, I mean, I taught at CalArts, which is a you know, kooky art school in LA for the past 12 years. So I've seen some far out teaching, you know, which is why I say I'm not like a really loopy teacher because like in that environment, I felt like, you know, y'all are with Michael Ash for doing like 40 hour crits. Like in my class, we're gonna learn about Freud's pleasure principle number one, you know? Like, I mean, we're gonna kind of like go through some knowledge, you know? But I feel like that was my job there because I was like, the only one among, you know, like me and my critical studies faculty were the only ones there who were supposed to give it. But I feel like now that I moved to a more, um, you know, establishment university, like I, I see that like I, I'm, you know, it all, everything's contextual. So I think that like, I'm, more, but I was gonna say about Eve that she, you know, she didn't do that many odd things. I mean, we really just talked, you know, in the classroom, it wasn't like we played duck, duck, goose or like, did a lot of, you know, whatever, you know, we didn't like weave together, but I, but I, but I, but I did think that she, um, but, but, but she brought her interest into the classroom in a different way, you know, and I think, you know, little things like the totem animal thing that, you know, horrified me, but, but were, um, you know, as I say in the Argonauts, like I'd, I'd move from, I grew up in the Haight-Ashbury and I'd come all the way to New York to just be like, I only want rigor all the time. And then I was like, you know, just frozen, like, a totem animal, like, you know, I'm just, you know, that's what my mom had to do on like spirit rock last week, like, you know, like at a wake or something, like I'm not doing it in a classroom, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, I think, you know, I'm really interested in, I, I, really I really love a classroom, you know, I love the classroom space, especially, um, especially as, um, I mean, I wrote about this a lot in The Art of Cruelty, but if you're, if you're somebody who really loves third things in the kind of Jacques Rancière sense of like a, a thing that's not Sheila and it's not me, but it's something that we can point to and kind of have, um, you know, as an uncollapsed um, uh, mode of relating, you know, um, that, that's out of both of our controls about which we can say what we think, but is essentially not, um, um, not ours in a proprietary sense or that we can control its effects and like if you really love that then like the classroom I think the classroom to me is a third thing so it's a place where like um, I mean Sarah Shulman has this new book that I was talking to Margo about earlier that some of you might have read Conflict is Not Abuse it's a difficult book I don't I don't you know know what I think of it in entirety but I do think that um, you know the points that she makes about some of the difficulties about um, about safe spaces and classrooms and stuff is that like a classroom is one of the spaces where, where there, there can be very hurtful or dangerous or difficult things that happen. But typically it's not a place where actual physical assault is occurring, you know? I mean, if it is, you stop, you, you get help, you know? So I think it's like figuring out how people can feel a lot of conflict in a space where they actually feel fairly 100% sure that no nothing actually dangerous to their physical body will happen is like a really, um, beautiful space, you know, and I think it's, um, I mean, I continue to teach difficult things, um, and I continue to hope that the classroom can be, can, can, can stay a place um, that can hold us, 
you know, not, it doesn't have to be the only place, but it's one place that I think, in a Winnicott sense, can be a, a, a container in a good way, you know. Hi. Can I ask Sheila a question? Sure. Okay. Um, when did you discover Maggie's work? And how much of an influence has it been? And I mean, what's your favorite of her? Hers? Um, um, I, it's a good question. I don't remember the first time I heard your name. The first time. I, but I think the first time I read your book, I actually heard, because I've been working on this book, Motherhood, since 2010. And like, when did Argonauts come out? No, 2015. 2015, okay. So then in 2014 or 2013, I heard that you were writing a book. I was, I was like, Maggie Nelson's writing a book about motherhood. And I was like, fuck. And then, <laughs> and then, and then I wrote your editor. I wrote Ethan um, Nazowski and uh, Grey Wolf. And I was like, could you send me Maggie's manuscript of the Argonauts? And he's like, sure. And it was like an early draft. No you don't know about this? Yeah. And uh, it was an early draft. <laughs> Not super early, it was probably like right, it was probably the last draft or before layout, but it was definitely like in Word. Um, and, I, and I started reading it and I probably read about seven or eight pages and I was like, okay, she's not doing the same thing I'm doing. I don't, I don't do I'll just like respect the book, I'll wait till it comes out. Um, and then as soon as it came out, Ethan sent it to me and then I read it as like an incomplete book and I, that was probably the first book of yours that I read. But I definitely like knew your reputation before that and um, yeah, and uh, you know, I, it's it's silly to say like I have a friend who's who's writing a book about motherhood, and she, the whole time she was just like, "You're writing the same book I am. You're writing the exact same book I am." To me, yeah. And I sent her the book, and finally, after all these years of work, and she wrote me back, and she's like, "You're not writing the same book I am." And I was like, "What do you think of the book? Like, why don't you write me back and say it's great or something like that?" <laughs> so it's a very narcissistic kind of thing to do to just be like. And it's also really deluded to think you're writing the same book as somebody else. Um, yeah, writers, writers do that kind of thing. Yeah. Know, it's not uncommon. I mean, also we work, I mean, not, not extremely similarly, but I think that like, I mean, I think one of my enjoyments of being kind of like spies in different genres is that like I'm never really worried that like, you know, Lauren Berlant or something and I are going to like sound the same on the page or something. Like, I mean, she's an academic for those of you who don't know, but like just kind of, um, but I think if you're, I mean, there are probably like, you know, 12 people I could think of that I might be concerned that our idiom might be similar and you'd probably be one of them. Yeah. Um, did I answer that question? What's, your, what's one of my favorite book? <laughs> um, and then I, I reread them all this week and uh, I, I kind of like the red parts best this week. I mean, next year I might like another one best, but that's for whatever reason, there's just something so urgent about it. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that. This has been an enjoyable trip in the sense that, like, I feel like there's, like, a Canadian-only, like, enjoyment of the art of cruelty, which never happens in the States, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and then also, I, yeah, and then, you know, I think, like, The Red Parts was one of my only books that came out and died. I don't mean died, like, critically. I just mean died like it went out of print, um, which was a really wonderful lesson about. It was also my only book that's ever come out with, a large press and that I ever got any money for it whatsoever. So it was like a really good, like, oh, and then that's what happens there. So that was really good to know, good to note. Um, but it was not until Grey Wolf reissued it this past year that it kind of got another life. So that made me very happy, you know. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, and just a side note, I admire how you've managed to not have any images on any of your covers. Like it's all just all text. Is that true? Anyways, please ask your questions. Yeah, yeah. That just yeah. seems really hard, There's especially some blood if you're on the art of cruelty. But they wanted it to have a razor, and I went down all the way to the mat to get the razor off. Yeah. There's like a line. There's a red line. Yeah, the or razor something. used to be pulling the line, and I was okay. like, it has to go. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess except Jane, a murder has, but it's clear you picked that picture. I yeah. Hi, this question is for Maggie. Um, since reading The Art of Cruelty, one of the things that's really stuck with me was you introducing Bart's concept of the neutral. And you end the book there and just kind of have this lovely paragraph which goes through how it introduces responses that had previously been like unthinkable, like slipping, drifting, fleeing, escaping. And you touch on it, I think, for a page in the Argonauts, but it's so fleeting. And I'm just wondering if you can expand on what, yeah, what your concepts of the neutral are, because I'm so curious. Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, Bart's neutral is, you know, I, I, I can never say anything the way that he says it or determines it, you know. So I think that, I mean, for that book, the neutral was kind of a lifeline because I, I don't know when I read the neutral, maybe like midway through writing that project and it um, kind of the shrug that, that Sheila was demonstrating earlier, um, the shrug would have maybe been on that list of things, but it was like it was like offering, you know, his offering of all these verbs of other things. And again, like I was talking about earlier about my kind of being a person who likes to get underneath the premises of something, you know, the neutral is a rejection of the terms on offer, right? And, and, and it's, a, it's an insistence that there, there must be something yet that we haven't, you know, um, that we haven't... Um, thought about, or maybe one of those things, you know, like, like when presented with two sides, a refusal to take one of those two sides remains a viable option. And when I was growing up, I was a big fan of John Cage, you know, and, and kind of probably through him got turned on to reading a lot of Buddhist um, psychology and self-help and, you know, texts. But like, you know, but ironically, the first thing that got me into John Cage, I was a teenager, I was just probably 14, and I read an interview with him in which somebody asked him a question. They asked him, this was, this was a whole interview. I'd never heard of him. I didn't know, have any idea who he was. It was just an interview I randomly came upon, and the interviewer said, um, what do you regret most about your life? And he said, forgive me, I don't think that's an interesting question. <laughs> And for some reason, just reading that, I was like, who is this person? It was like a, like a light bulb went on for me, and I, I needed to know who they were. And I was like, that, you can answer a question that way. Like, I had no idea, you know, no idea. And then from him, um, from Cage, you know, and then obviously noting his, um, uh, you know, deep enmeshment with Buddhist thought and, and, and noting that, you know, that in some traditions, um, a neutral or a third way or a rejection of the terms or a, or a kind of um, a, a deep... Uh, being died, like D-Y-E-D, -E like in paradox, is, um, is expected and part and parcel um, of thinking became very, um, you know, just exceptionally useful to me. So I can't, really, I can't really pontificate, I wouldn't really want to about, you know, Bart's neutral per se, but to me, even though there are ways I could 
nominate or articulate what it is. To me, it's more of a visceral thing I can feel happening in my mind when like, a, when, like another way opens besides the ones that have been proffered. And um, to me, that's kind of like the birth of my thought, I guess. And, and it feels exciting, you know. And it has a de deconstructive element, right? Because you have to get there, you have to deconstruct uh, what's, been, what's been on offer, you know. This is very quick, just between questions, but um, the, um, the, the interview, um, there's one of my favorites, my brother just told this to me about a week ago, where um, Jean Cocteau was asked, you know, if your house was on fire and you could only save one thing from the house, what would it be? And he said, the fire. And uh, I guess if you could only take one thing from the house, what would it be the fire? And I'm just like, oh yeah, like that's, you can answer questions in so many, because that's such a banal question, just like, yeah. what do you regret most about your life? Yeah, I, I was recently sent this kind it's of like, like 20 life. questions things, which I declined to do, but it was like the whole 20 questions was like, they gave you two choices in each one. It was like designed for me to like be in hell. <laughs> like they were all white people and it was a series of questions. It was like Frontier or you know, Austin or, you know, Trollope or whatever. It was just like this whole list of questions. And I was like, oh my, like, I was, it was just like, my, I feel like my brain just like curdled and died upon reading it. Was this know? like a video for Elle or something like that? I, <laughs> just like, I feel like the women's magazines are easily find this out in the world, but now I'm just, now I'm just talking trash. Who gave that to you? Who gave you that questionnaire? But it was like a magazine or something? Or just, just a friend? It, so you'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> now Scott Ferrento, that's later. the question yeah. of 2016. Okay. Um, uh, how much time do we have? How many more questions do we have time for? Probably two Okay, questions. two more questions. Now, I'm really worried this is a terrible question and you're gonna judge me super hard, but... Uh, <laughs> um, Maggie, you talked briefly about uh, reparative reading, and I know that's a term that Cedric uses, and I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on what, what you mean by reparative reading. Good question. You guys are like, this is a hard crap. Um, because I keep, I already punted the last one to be like, well, Bart says it better. So now I'm like, well, go read Cedric. But like, you already did. So what can I, can I tell you? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a really hard question. I, even when I said the word, I, I feel like I have to invent it for myself. I mean, I feel like that there are these words. I mean, part of the reason why the art of cruelty, I think, is a little weak in parts is that like the word I kept finding for certain forms of cruelty I was interested in was worthwhile. And I was like, worthwhile, like what a, it's not a good word, you know what I mean? But like, I feel like I do, so I feel like Sedgwick kind of landed in a sense on reparative. I mean, she's taking it from Melanie Klein, right? And that's why I'm not gonna go into it because it's kind of like, anyway, Melanie Klein's a little off my pay grade, but like, I think that, um, I mean, I think it's something at the core of that piece, which I quote in the Argonauts, but that is also that like, um, that's really meaningful to me. And I think I was trying to get in the art of cruelty, which I still feel, which is, refers back to what I was talking about, about art and ethics, is that like, you know, I think it's, I think it's a mistake to look at the piece of art and ask or hope that it be ethical, you know? And what I like about the concept of reparative reading or something, and this goes back to like disidentification, is that it, you know, it returns the activity in a certain sense to the person doing it in a way. And so like what makes a reparative practice for an individual artist or for the person encountering them it is not, it may, be, it may not perform that duty or that um, uh, just the activity of repair for everybody, you know? But the, I think um, 
Sedgwick writes about how, she thinks she's writing about Jack Smith. I have to reread it again, it's been a long time. But I think that, um, you know, she, the part I quote in the Argonauts is where she says, you know, it turns out that like some of the most paranoid people um, can have some of the most reparative practices, you know? And I think that it also can be like, people always have a, um, can have this confusion like, um, well, if he's so awful, why is this art so beautiful? Or if this is kind of back to your question, like, like if this is so this, why is this so like this? And it's kind of like with a paranoid and repair kind of thing. I, I love this idea that like part of what makes art so fantastic is that people can make things that are based on like that they wouldn't know about if they didn't have their particularly egregious demons. You know what I mean? And like and that, that and that therefore their intimacy with those things, you know, can offer us something that can for you know if you're interlocking with it in the right way that can have reparative function um, uh, that is that 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 need that the premise of it need not be that it emanated from a place where no harm was taking place or something like that I'm not sure if I'm making any sense but these are I mean they're complicated ideas but anyway I'll go we'll, we'll, we'll talk later about reparative <laughs> our last question who's it gonna be That person. I have a two-month-old baby, and I love in the Argonauts. Wait, what did you say? I'm sorry. I, I have a two-month-old oh, baby. Congratulations. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> oh, I had images of myself doing this this morning in the shower. Um, I love in the Argonauts when you talk about how your son's body was a revelation, like that there really was something in there. I, I still find it shocking every day. And I'm just wondering, it's kind of a personal question, you don't have to answer, but how are you reckoning dealing with your son's growing, changing body and your relationship to his body? Because I find myself being sad already every day that he's gonna go away from me, you know, whatever, it's a cliche, but I do find it, I'm trying to not be sad about it all the time with, in midst of all the joy and how, how amazing and good it feels to have his body on my body all the time. So I'm not sure how old your son is, but how you deal with that, that yeah. constant change. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I think when I was writing The Argonauts and I was much closer to that, to that moment, I knew I knew, and it was fine with me. I knew it was a book about reckoning with infancy, kind of birth and infancy. Um, I knew that um, because I've had the rodeo of books before, I knew that by the time I was done writing it and by the time it came out and by the time I might be in Toronto talking about it, you know, like years later, like he's almost six. So like, and then my stepson is um, 13 uh, this Saturday. So like, I, I already knew that, like, and, and I kind of, I, I love that, because I kind of knew that I was, like, trying to pay homage to one place that would already be gone, because I felt like writing is, uh, you know, I'm really interested in writing in time and writing in temporality, so I, I kind of liked the idea that it was gone before I was doing it, so it felt, you know, because I think it re replicates, like, what you're describing, is that it's um, evanescent, even as it's happening in a certain sense, and that that is painful, as is life, and it's evanescence. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that a lot of people when I wrote that book who are parents of older children um, or adult children 
would say to me things like, oh, you just wait, or like, oh, you think you can handle anger now, but like, you know, and I, and I, I do think that handling a infant or toddler's rage, I'm learning is different than handling a teenager's rage or something. So like, I think that, but I think it's not, but it didn't bother me when people would kind of tell me that I was ignorant because I was like, I'm not, like, I don't, I'm not trying to know, you know? So I think I, um, I think that I learn, I think, what do I want to say? I want to say that in terms of your question about, um, this sounds like a cerebral way of handling the question of how I'm handling that um, growing up or moving away, but I do think that since I'm very interested intellectually, but I'm also really interested kind of ethically um, in questions of how, I mean, Judith Butler has written a lot about this and other people, but about how our kind of fundamental dependency um, on each other, stemming from infancy, um, is um, disavowed, uh, outgrown slash repressed um, as we become adults. And that obviously there's a lot of feminist scholarship on the idea that the kind of disavowal of that basic dependency is um, one of the tenets upon which um, you know, all hell has, <laughs> has broken loose. Um, and, you know, Butler's written a lot about what the form of that disavowal might take. Now, um, and, and, but, but Butler's also written about the way that it's not as if the argument is that to keep, an, to keep that notion of fundamental interrelation or dependency alive, one has to, um, and I think this is what one knows raising people that you're trying to get onto their own lives, is that you're not, the idea is that no, it's not that nobody individuates and nobody ever learns any skills of independence and that nobody ever, um, you know, quote unquote, like breaks away or anything like that. It's, it's kind of about what we, what we do with the fundamental dependency as we, as we grow along. And I think that, you know, the argument can be that like, uh, you know, if we grow to hate it, you know, if we grow to hate it, then you, know, then you will grow to hate the idea of a nanny state, and you will grow to hate the idea of social services, and you will grow to hate, you know, and you will grow to hate your own sickness and illness when it happens, and you will grow to feel, you know, like that you need to abject those among you who are um, differently abled. I mean, so there's all these kind of other things that can happen. So I think it's like there's a lot to learn about infancy that's like beautiful, and that bring you very close to that um, fundamental fact of our existence um, and that parenting along means that you also learn um, that the idea is not that, that, that's, that we stay in that state, but it's more how we relate to its, um, its root within us, if that makes sense, you know. That's a beautiful last question and answer. Um, thanks so much for coming to Toronto. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you.